Welcome to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for joining us. A little later in the show, we're going to have a conversation about Pole Town, talk about its history, talk about what the controversy was surrounding that plant and the idea for that plant from the very beginning. Bill McGraw, who's a local historian and journalist, former reporter with the Detroit Free Press, is going to be here to help us unpack all of the things that are resurfacing now as General Motors says it will close or at least shutter the Pole Town plant next year as part of its massive nationwide cutback. So you're going to want to stay tuned to that conversation. It should get started at about 40 minutes past the hour. But first, imagine thumbing through the newspaper and reading something like this. Healthy Negro lad, about 17 years of age, to be sold, Esquire of the Printers. Suki Hamilton, cook to the late governor with her youngest daughter, seven years old, will be sold before Mr. Hayes' door on Thursday, the 15th December next. Credit will be allowed for six months, bond and proper security being given. Hundreds of years ago in this country, these were the kinds of advertisements you found in newspapers across the land. And the profit from these slave advertisements were not just shared between buyer and seller. They were also pumping money into the pockets of the publications that ran them and their owners. The idea that newspapers and other periodicals, some of which survive today, help build their financial infrastructures on the back of slave advertisements is not widely discussed or even widely known. But for Dr. Carl Kies, an associate professor of history at Assumption College in Massachusetts, these advertisements have become the focus of an important project. The Adverts 250 project brings attention to the ways in which early American journalism was supported by the sale of human chattel. Each day, his project remembers an ad that ran 250 years ago, some about slaves for sale, some about slaves for recapture. It happened in newspapers in the South, and it happened in newspapers in the North. And Kai's project asks us all to contemplate what that history means today. That's where we want to start the conversation today, talking about the history of journalism and slavery in America. And joining us now to get that conversation started is Dr. Kyle Kais. He is an associate professor of history at Assumption College in Massachusetts. His research focuses on colonial and slavery era American history. Dr. Kais, welcome to Detroit Today. Thank you for inviting me to join you. I'm very happy to be with you today. Sure. So I, I, um, I discovered your project on Twitter, and I won't remember who or what pointed me in that direction, but it was months ago, and I have to say that since I discovered it, I am endlessly fascinated by it. I'm fascinated by the things that you're pointing out from history, and I'm fascinated by the entire conceit behind the project, the idea of looking back at the roots of journalism through this lens. So tell me, how did you become interested in slave ads in colonial and slavery era newspapers? 
Well, it, it, it's a project that builds out of my primary area of research, which is on advertising for consumer goods and services in 18th century America uh, during the colonial and revolutionary periods. Uh, I'm working on a book project that's primarily about the consumer revolution and consumer goods and services, but it's impossible to look at advertising in a colonial or revolutionary era newspaper uh, and look for those advertisements that have to do with consumer goods and services without encountering the barrage of advertisements for enslaved men, women, and children. And so this, the Slavery Adverts Project has grown out of the original project that was about the consumer goods and services. It also grew out of my desire to incorporate my undergraduate students into a, a more authentic research project. I mean, everybody knows that uh, a good colonial American history class incorporates the transatlantic slave trade and the experiences of enslaved men, women, and children. But I think that there's a variety of different ways that that can be incorporated. And what I formally did was I would choose a, a, a representative selection of these advertisements to present to the students and say, let's, let's have a look at these, let's do a close reading, let's figure out what they can tell us about the experiences of these people in the past. And I decided that I wanted to move beyond simply supplying these sources to students and have them more actively engaging with them through doing the research themselves. So that's why I decided originally to create the Twitter project, which indeed does republish every known slavery advertisement that was originally published in a colonial American newspaper 250 years ago to the day. Hmm. So a couple of years ago in my colonial American history class, I set up students to be guest curators for this project. Each of them was responsible for a different week during the semester where they had to collect all of the relevant newspapers and identify all of the advertisements. This was uh, originally supposed to be a 10-week, one-semester project, but once the students started republishing these advertisements on Twitter and reaching audiences beyond the academy, beyond the traditional classroom, we realized that it was, it was such a popular project and it was engaging audiences that usually don't have access to this sort of material that I continued it on my own between semesters and then incorporated it into my Revolutionary America class the following semester because the, the period that the project is, is examining 250 years ago is squarely at the end of the colonial period, but at the beginning of the American Revolution. It's mm. part of that imperial crisis after the, the Seven Years' War comes to a conclusion and when Parliament starts to clamp down on uh, the American colonies and white colonists start yelping about their supposed enslavement by Parliament, yet in the same newspaper pages where they're complaining so much about Parliament depriving them of their liberties, they're also advertising enslaved people for sale and fugitives that they want to recapture and return to their slaveholders. So this, this was, in, in some ways, an accidental project hmm. because it started out as a classroom assignment that turned into so much more. Yeah. Uh, talk about the range of ads that, that you see in these, in these newspapers and, and Talk about the kinds of things that you can learn about 
this relationship between newspapers and slaveholders, about the relationship between slaveholders and slaves, just just from reading these ads. Sure. So uh, I think there's a variety of different ways that we can think about the range of advertisements. One of the, the ways is geographic range. And you had mentioned in your introduction that these are newspaper advertisements that are drawn from across the colonies. And I think that that's really something that's important to underscore is that oftentimes in the popular imagination, we think of slavery as being a Southern practice. We think of it as something that's associated with the antebellum period, with the 19th century. And one of the goals of this project is to demonstrate that in the 18th century, in the colonial and revolutionary periods, that slavery was widely practiced throughout all of the colonies. So, for example, anybody who follows the Twitter feed today is going to see advertisements drawn solely from newspapers that were published in New England and New York. Uh, different newspapers published on different days of the week. So uh, people that continue to follow will see advertisements from Virginia, South Carolina, Georgia eventually. But so many people that I share this project with, including my own students, are, are, are surprised and shocked by the extent that slavery was present in New England hmm. because it does get phased out after the revolution. Uh, New England becomes the part of the free states. And so this has, for, for many people, certainly not for historians, but for many, many people, has become a forgotten story of enslavement in, in American history. Another range that I think that we can look at is just the, the fact that these are advertisements for both men and women, that uh, uh, it's an important resource, I believe, for doing women's history in mm. addition to, to men's history, that hardly a day passed in colonial America that the experiences of enslaved women were not highlighted in one way, shape, or form in these advertisements that appeared somewhere in, in the colonies, uh, that it's, it's difficult to find stories of, of black women elsewhere in the newspapers, but they are certainly present in these advertisements. And while the advertisements don't represent their experiences in their own voices, it's possible to read uh, against the grain to help to reconstruct some of the experiences of enslaved people. In fact, some historians have described runaway slave advertisements as the first slave narratives because they do tell us so much about uh, enslaved men and women and their motivations and their their backgrounds. And, and that's their, their backgrounds are another way that we can look at the range because so many of these advertisements talk about particular skill sets that enslaved people possessed. Yes. Yes. We, we so often think of uh, slaves working in the fields on plantations, but these advertisements revealed that enslaved men and women had a variety of skills. Many of them worked in domestic service. Many of them were skilled artisans. They were coopers and blacksmiths and carpenters and millers. And they contributed so much to the early American economy beyond just their labor. They contributed their expertise and skill as well. And that's a, a part of our, our general conception of slavery 
that doesn't tend to be remembered either. One more thing that I could say about the range of advertisements, and I, I think that you mentioned this to some extent in your introduction, is that this project deals with uh, advertisements for enslaved people that are offered for sale, as well as advertisements for fugitives mm-hmm. who have tried to achieve their own freedom, tried to achieve their own liberty by running away. It also includes advertisements for captured fugitives who are being held at a workhouse or at a, a jail and letting people, uh, letting slaveholders know that they have been captured and that they can uh, reclaim their human property if they visit those places. And there's also advertisements for slaves that are offered to be hired out, which is, is something that a lot of people are not aware of either, is this idea that uh, slaveholders sometimes didn't have enough work to keep their slaves busy and to get a return on their investment, they would hire them out or rent them out in order to keep them busy and to keep revenues flowing back to the slaveholders. I, I know uh, a century later, Frederick Douglass writes in his, uh, in his narrative about how he was hired out and he, he, he felt a lot of anguish over the fact that his, his slaveholder received the wages and, and mm. Douglas got virtually nothing for it. Mm. So we see that sort of uh, experience taking place a century earlier. It was a common practice in colonial and revolutionary America, mm. as well as the antebellum period. Uh, this is Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and my guest is Dr. Carl Kies. He's an associate professor of history at Assumption College in Massachusetts. His research focuses on colonial and slavery-era American history. We're talking about a project that he is undertaking. It's called the Slavery Adverts 250 Project. It takes a look back each day at 250 years before, at a newspaper 250 years before, and the kinds of ads that that newspaper was running, sometimes ads for slaves, sometimes ads for recapture of slaves. Uh, We're talking about that history and how it marries the history of slavery with the history of journalism in this country, and we're going to talk in a little bit about how that sort of casts forward to today. How do we see sort of reflections of that in in modern America. If you want to join the conversation, give us a call. 313-577-1019 is always the number on the phones. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page and put comments there. Or you can go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and we'll work you into the conversation. Uh, I want to get to the calls here because we've got a really interesting question from a caller, Dr. Kai's Kenneth at Wayne State. Uh, Kenneth, go ahead. Hi, uh, thank you so much for having me on. Um, I just want to say, as a history student at Wayne State, I really appreciate what you're doing, Professor, particularly um, involving your students in your digital research projects. I think it's a great way to really get hands-on research and just to have an amazing experience in a history class that will really get you um, with the actual history you're studying up close and personal. Uh, my question was about the placement of these ads in the newspapers. I was wondering if, you know, like, where are these ads placed in these newspapers? Do they have their own, like, separate sort of classified section? Are they on the front page? And what can the placement of these ads really tell us about the slaves, slavers, and the people buying uh, these slaves or um, um, reading these newspapers? Yeah, Kenneth, really, really great question. We think about newspapers 
in the modern context, I think, in the way that they're structured, uh, they looked different in colonial America. So it's a it's a it's a great question. Where did these ads run, uh, Dr. Kais? Uh, go ahead. It is indeed a wonderful question, and there's no simple answer to this uh, except to say that there is no classification system. The way that advertisements ran in colonial and revolutionary era uh, newspapers tended oftentimes to group advertisements together, uh, all of the advertisements, but didn't distinguish amongst the genre or the type or the purpose of the advertisement. So it would often be possible on a single page to have uh, advertisements about slaves scattered all over the page, interspersed with advertisements for consumer goods and services, legal notices, real estate notices, all sorts of other paid advertisements that were put in there. So there was uh, no rhyme or reason often to where these were. Also, colonial and revolutionary era newspapers were limited to four pages. They were created by taking a single broadsheet printing on both sides and folding it in half to create a four-page issue. Some newspapers reserved advertising for the third and fourth pages. Others put advertising on the first page and, and the last page and had the, the news content in the center. So for those that had advertising on the first page, the first item could have been, the first item that anybody saw could have been a, an advertisement for enslaved men, women, and children. So they they were indeed all over the place in the newspapers. Uh, hard to look at a newspaper without potentially encountering one of these advertisements. Mm-hmm. Sometimes um, a, a page of the newspaper would be divided between having news on one side, advertisements on the other side of the page. In which case, uh, the the advertisements for enslaved people could be running alongside news content, and as I mentioned before, often in the 1760s, this news content was about the revolutionary crisis that was brewing. Uh, One of the things that my students and I did last year is that we traced the publication of John Dickinson's Letters from a Farmer in Pennsylvania, which many people consider a precursor to common sense Hmm. in, in many ways. We traced its publication through a republication throughout newspapers printed throughout the colonies and saw how often this, uh, this ideological tract about English liberties and colonial liberties appeared right next to these advertisements about enslaved people. Hmm. So I, I think that they real, the placement really testifies to the juxtaposition of freedom and liberty on one hand and enslavement on the other hand in the 1760s and the 1770s, this period that we often remember as being the birth of America, the birth of freedom and liberty, but we need to step back and say, liberty for whom? Because it was certainly an uneven application of the the rhetoric of the revolution, especially when we see the placement of these advertisements on the page Mm -hmm. next to so much of this revolutionary ideology wow. that, that white colonists are wow. expressing. Yeah, that that conflict, uh, of course, is present throughout much of the revolutionary period. This idea of 
of a nation born of this thirst for liberty uh, at the same time that it is uh, making great effort to, to frame up the, the birth of the nation around the idea of inequality for, for African Americans. And, and there are some pretty prominent figures in our revolutionary history who get caught up in this very in this very dilemma, Ben Franklin uh, comes to mind, and and his early newspaper career, uh, he at at times not only um, uh, ran slave ads in his in his publications, but he also, from time to time, would take slaves as payment uh, for advertisement and other things in in his newspaper. And I'm I'm glad that you bring up. Ben Franklin, because he was indeed a, a slaveholder himself, and he also uh, he ran these advertisements. And part of the inspiration for my work was I wanted to build on uh, a, a book by David Waldstriker called Runaway America, Benjamin Franklin, Slavery, and the American Revolution, in which he does make this argument about how uh, Franklin's Pennsylvania Gazette in particular, but the early American press in general, benefited financially from participation in the slave trade, even if not technically being slave traders themselves, by all of the revenues generated by advertising and also their assistance in creating surveillance of black people through these advertisements for, uh, for, for runaway slaves, that, uh, that, that, that Franklin and, and other founders are, are definitely wrapped up in the, the journalistic aspects of the perpetuation of slavery in the colonial and revolutionary period. Mm-hmm. Uh, again, 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. Let's take one more call here. Charlie in Detroit. Go ahead. Yeah, hi. Um, two things. One, a statement. I wanted to, again, thank the professor for doing what he's doing. I think, and I hope it filters down into our primary and middle schools, because if we don't get this stuff through, the, you know, the reality to our kids, um, I don't think we're ever going to come over the baked-in prejudice and racial strife we have in this country. Um, but second, I wanted to ask, are there any newspapers back in the day that refused to run these ads? Hmm. If so, are they still around? Hmm. Great question, Charlie. Uh, Dr. Kais, I would add to that, are there newspapers that still exist today uh, that have decided to sort of grapple with this history? Um, so. Take a so, shot at both questions there. <laughs> yeah, the, 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 those, those are great questions. Uh, I will first acknowledge that I know of AP history teachers that are already using this project in their classroom. Mm. I hope that other instructors also use it. To the question of uh, newspapers who refuse to run these advertisements, I don't know of any in the colonial and revolutionary period that refused. I know that abolitionist newspapers in the North in the antebellum period did take a stand against, and naturally took a stand against, this, but I'm not aware in the colonial and revolutionary period of printers refusing to run these advertisements. Hmm. Uh, as far as newspapers that still exist, because this is a project that ran uh, that, that looks at 250 years ago, I've not examined every single colonial and revolutionary era newspaper. For those that have been incorporated into the project, uh, all but six. Uh, ended sometime before 1820. Hmm. Those that did continue after 1820 all are from New England. Uh, I know of at least three that do continue to exist in one way, shape, or form. The most prominent and relevant for our 
conversation today is the Hartford Current, mm-hmm. which was known as the Connecticut Current in 1768. Uh, and it, in two, the year 2000, ran a 1,500-word front-page article on July 4th that acknowledged and apologized for the newspaper's prior participation in advertising uh, enslaved people in the colonial and revolutionary periods as well as into the 19th century. Mm. I am not aware of other newspapers uh, that have similarly made those sorts of apologies. Um, but uh, so uh, it, it's it's definitely something out there sure. that newsrooms could continue to grapple with. Yeah. Okay, Dr. Carl Kai is associate professor of history at Assumption College. Uh, thanks very much for being here with us on Detroit Today. Thank you for letting me share about the project. Sure. And you can check out uh, Dr. Kai's work at adverts250project.org. Up next, we're going to talk about a local angle on this story. The Detroit Free Press also played a role in this issue when it was founded in the early 1800s. Also, don't forget, if you have to miss any of today's show, you don't have to miss out on the conversation. Just go to iTunes or wherever you download podcasts. Download and subscribe to Detroit Today and take us with you and listen when you are ready. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. You're listening to Detroit Today on uh, 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for joining us. It's not just newspapers from other places that find their roots entangled with this country's awful history of racism. The Detroit Free Press, published in our own city since the mid-1800s, was begun as an anti-abolitionist paper dedicated to the idea of convincing Northerners in places like Detroit to avoid the idea of a war with the South over slavery. Here to talk a little more about our local history with journalism and bigotry is Bill McGraw. He's a local historian and journalist and, like me, is a former staffer of the Detroit Free Press. Bill, welcome to Detroit Today. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So, uh, full disclosure, uh, both of us worked for a long time at the Detroit Free Press. You worked there even longer than I did. Uh, And this is something that you and I have actually talked about uh, in the past. Uh, We we have talked about the the history that the Free Press has and the desire to to publicize that history, uh, which is something that the paper has not really ever done. Like the Hartford Current did. Uh, right. And there's right. other papers like the Louisville Courier Journal, I think is the name of that paper uh-huh. there. Yes. They apologize for the way they didn't cover the civil rights movement yeah. uh, in the six, 50s and 60s. Right. So and other, you, many other papers have acknowledged their sins as far as covering race and race-related uh, activity. Yeah. So, so let's start with what the actual history is here when the Detroit Free Press is started in, I think, 1831. Yeah, it's almost getting close to 200 years old. Getting close to the 200th anniversary. Uh, What's the impetus for the beginning of that paper? Well, it's founded, as we said, uh, 1831. Andrew Jackson was president. And the two people who were the money behind the Free Press were two well-known names today, John R. Williams and Joseph Campo. They were relatives. I think uh, John R. was uh, Campo's nephew, and despite his name, he was uh, culturally French. 
So now during they owned slaves during the slave owning period of Detroit, which ended in by the 1820s. So 11, 12 years later, they start the Free Press. And the Free Press originally was, a, of course, a Democratic paper. It was a political organ. And it wasn't a newspaper as we think of it now. It did evolve into that over the next 20, 30 years as American newspapers changed. When the Free Press really becomes um, notorious is in the 1840s and 50s as the debate about slavery in America intensifies. And the, the buildup to the war is, exactly. is underway. Exactly. And the Free Press um, still was a Democratic paper. Um, let's take the um, 1850s when the debate about uh, runaway slaves and all that was, was going on. And um, uh, let me, I think by quantifying this in a way, it will quickly bring listeners up to speed. So if you enter the N-word in the search engine in the Free Press database, you get 6,667 hits. Hmm. And when I first was uh, got curious about this, I was goofing around at the Free Press one day and was looking at the paper from the 1850s, and I saw a headline that said, N-word, N-word, N-word. That was the headline. And I'd thought the Free Press was an abolitionist paper. Uh, I thought <laughs> Detroit was, uh, because of the Underground Railroad that we uh, you know, glorify today, was a total abolitionist city, which wasn't true either. So the Free Press, every day in the 1850s and in the 1860s, had racial slurs in it. They wrote stories, uh, fake stories, fake news about um, black people in Detroit doing bad things and beating up white people. Um, They were um, transfixed by the idea of what they call amalgamation, Mm -hmm. which is blacks and whites mixing, and especially mixing and uh, sexually mixing. And that word. I, I haven't searched for that word, but it's got to be in there um, more than a thousand times also. Yeah. So they were a, um, uh, a really rabidly racist paper in that day. Now, the other paper in Detroit in the 1860s, the Detroit Advertiser and Tribune, was a pro-abolition paper. And everything the Free Press was against, that paper was for. They were for Lincoln. They were for that black regiment that was formed in Detroit in the 1860s when the Free Press thought arming black men was the worst idea in the world. And they expressed that in a very brutal way every day. And so, um, you know, historians, people who get PhDs in journalism have (laughs) studied this over the years. And uh, there are other papers like the Free Press, but they say, and in fact, the Cleveland Plain Dealer, Cincinnati Inquirer, Um, But they say the Free Press was the most vicious paper in the North. Wow. Uh, And that history casts forward in the newspaper for some time. I mean, it's well into the 19th century and even into the 20th century. The Free Press struggles with this question of race in Detroit. And I always have thought that that's, that's got its roots in in its founding, that that sort of uh, all related. Well, even in the well during um, Reconstruction, the Free Press was really rabid, also. And then the 1880s, they had a very popular columnist whose name was Charles Lewis. He wrote under a pen name M E M Quad, which is a printing term, and his whole shtick was making fun of black people. He had a made-up club that he wrote about. He was a fiction writer, really. And humor was an important part of American newspapers there, as we think of Mark Twain as the most famous. Mm-hmm. And, and so people thought this guy was funny. I don't see it when I read his columns. And he has all these um, black men talking in dialect and debating things like in July about how many snow shovels we should buy. So just totally belittling of what was then a very small black population in Detroit. Mm-hmm. And so going forward... You know, in the early 20th century, um, 
the, uh, the, the Klan got active in Detroit, as we know, in the 18, uh, 1920s. And the Free Press had a big expose about the Klan meeting somewhere in the sub, or what, what is now the suburbs, uh, a huge meeting of guys in white uh, you know, outfits. And that was in, done in a very neutral way. So at least by the 20s, the Free Press had turned the corner, even though it was a very conservative paper until Knight, the Knight Company bought it in 1940. It, it wasn't the outwardly racist paper, but of course, by then, American society was changing to some extent. Mm-hmm. It wasn't uh, cool anymore to have racial slurs on the front page. Yeah, uh, This is Detroit Today on 101.9 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and my guest is Bill McGraw. He's a local historian and journalist, former reporter with the Detroit Free Press. We are talking about the Free Press history and how it is entangled with the nation's history of racism, entangled with the question of slavery at its founding. Uh, earlier in the show, we were talking with a professor from Assumption College in Massachusetts who is running a website that takes a look back at early colonial newspapers in America and their entanglement with slavery, the ads that they ran for slaves, the ads that they ran to help recapture slaves. If you would like to join the conversation, give us a call. 313-577-1019 is the number on the phone. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page and put comments there or go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today and we'll work you into the conversation. Uh, Bill, uh, this question of coming to reckon with this history is something that that goes on in American newsrooms right now even. Uh, Is this something that that you think we will eventually see every newspaper uh, in the country that has its roots in this history have to come clean and 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 deal with well most have that's the thing and, and it's it's um you know it's frustrating to uh, a lot of people at the free press when uh you know i we wrote about this in 2000 or 2001 when yes. detroit turned 300 mm-hmm. and we were writing about a lot of different historical topics but the um the people who ran the paper then were really paranoid about publicizing this and i never quite understood why even uh the uh, bob magruder the editor of the paper, who was African American, he vetoed the idea of doing a, a really big story and really um, telling readers what is the free press past and sort of trying to figure out how does it play. You know, I mean, the free press for you know 75, 80 years, every day was pounding this this racist thing. You know, how did that affect people who grew up reading the free press? It was a leading paper in Detroit in those days. So. Um, Anyways, uh, Bob thought it was uh, best to search out racism today, and uh, that was his opinion, and that's fine. But So the free press is kind of an outlier in that sense that other papers have really dealt with it. I'll give one other example. When um, in New York City in the 80s, they discovered a uh, slave graveyard in lower Manhattan when they were building a, a skyscraper or something. And so New York being New York, it, it ignited uh, museum displays, books, discussions, I think the Times, um, which goes back to the 1850s, mm-hmm. um, but it was a um, abolitionist paper, so it, it 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 actually examined its past, but its its past was pretty positive. Yeah. Uh, again, three one three five seven seven one zero one nine is the number. Let's go to T in Midtown. T, welcome to Detroit today. Good morning hey. to, to you both and uh, everyone. I'm, thank you so much for taking my call. I'm wondering since the newspapers and many other um, companies had um, compensa- had, had compensation for slaves to some degree. 
don't they don't we don't we think that the newspaper should owe uh, reparations to African Americans hmm. are the descendants of today because they never paid it before. Uh, great question, T. Uh, that's a, something that uh, not just newspapers, but all kinds of institutions are struggling with right now. And I know that the latest example I can think of is Georgetown University, which uh, at some point sold slaves in order to, to correct some financial improprieties that they, they were suffering and is now going back, uh, finding the descendants of those slaves that they sold uh, and f- trying to figure out a way to, to make good on that. Uh, I believe there are some scholarships that are being set up and, and things like that. But that, this, is, this is sort of the broader context of this question. And, and we should be clear, uh, there's no evidence that the free press was running slave ads uh, at this time. I've never seen any yeah. uh, slave ads in the free press. The, uh, I've, I've mainly spent my time looking at stories, so I, they could be there. I don't know. Yeah, I, I have an old copy of, of the paper from the 1850s that was a gift uh, to me at some point. And I, it's, a, it's in a frame, and I, I don't want to pull it apart and, and take it out. But uh, I, I seem to remember seeing uh, a runaway slave ad in, in that edition. And it wouldn't be surprising, I suppose, if it were. But well, look at in 1833, um, the uh, Blackburn, uh, the couple, uh, were runaway slaves, and um, they were uh, caught, and their capture— um, touched off a rebellion among, again, the very small black population, and they freed them, and they ended up in Toronto and spent the right. rest of their lives in Canada. Right, right. But this whole question about uh, going back and, and looking at it does lead to the question of whether uh, compensation or reparation or whatever you want to call it uh, is is appropriate. Well, you know, um, a lot of... Uh, Many of the Ivy League colleges have also reexamined their past because, like uh, Yale, Brown, Princeton, Harvard, too, I think, they took money from people who like were rich slavers, mm-hmm. uh, not necessarily slave owners, but people who owned slave ships and things like that. And some of their dorms were named after them. So they've, um, you know, done research on themselves and publicized the findings, at least without paying anybody any money, at least acknowledging their past. Yeah, yeah. Okay, uh, Bill McGraw, local historian and journalist, former reporter with the Detroit Free Press. Thanks for being here to talk about this. should also say before we break, uh, the Free Press is an institution I have loved my entire life in this city and will continue to love. We just wanted to get right on this issue. All right, up next, we're going to keep Bill McGraw in the studio and we're going to pivot to a different piece of Detroit history, this one much more recent. We're going to talk about the demolition of a neighborhood to make way for the Pole Town General Motors manufacturing plant. Stay with us on Detroit Today.